speaking of uh, walking into significant places, uh, we're at Athens and Paul has uh, just arrived there and so perhaps you can put yourself in his sandals or whatever he was wearing uh, as he stepped into Athens and let's hear what actually took place as he did so. Acts chapter 17 and verse 16, I'm reading from the ESV, it'll be on the screen for you uh, as well. Acts chapter 17 and verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Sent, and um, especially this morning, we see again how Paul was sent, and we're going to learn quite a bit about what we as sent ones can do uh, where we are. I thought once again it's quite relevant to the whole campus ministry that Grant and Will uh, are busy doing, and also I'm hoping it'll be relevant for us. So Tony's read for us. We're in Acts chapter 17 from verse 16. Uh, Brenton has just prayed for us, so let's get stuck into it. I want to share a few lines with you 
Uh, and I want to ask you if you've heard them. And if you have, think about maybe the time you heard them, who's the person that shared with them, and then just kind of give a bit of a rough context. And I've got nine here, and uh, then we'll get into it. Here's the first one. Do whatever makes you happy. Second one, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. Number three, maybe God has made the world, but he's kind of gone now and he's left the whole planet to just run according to natural laws. Number four, there's no life after death. Once you die, that's it. Number five, wow, now that's mother nature for you. Or this one, which Beck and I saw in a movie the other night, it seems like the universe is telling you something. Number seven, we shouldn't kill the planet, but be in tune with her. For this one, second last one, all religions lead to the same God. Or the last one, there is a higher power, or maybe we can call it a God, but we cannot know it. Now, if you've heard any of these statements and you, maybe you know the people who made them as well as their lives, then you would know and, and have a very good idea of what the city of Athens was like that Paul has just arrived in. And my guess is that you would have heard these sayings from Perth people. That's certainly where I've heard them. Uh, and, um, you know, just kind of everyday Aussies. Uh, and, and yes, Perth would probably look quite different to what Athens looked like back in Paul's day. Um, you know, you know, that kind of happened about 50 years after Jesus uh, was born and less than 20 years um, after Jesus' death, resurrection and ascension. But I think if we look carefully, the same beliefs that uphold our secular society uh, was also the same beliefs that held up the society of Athens. I think Grant mentioned something like, things don't really change on campus. It's the same beliefs that people seem to hold on to. And so I quickly want to show you this. This is the first thing I want us to do. Have a look at verse 18, for example. Open up your Bibles. Keep them open as we go through the passage. In verse 18, we find these two major influential schools of thought. You've got the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Now, the the Epicureans were like the modern-day secular agnostics. That is, they believed in God's but they are kind of part of another world. They, they certainly don't bother interfering with our world, uh, and really, it's just because they don't care. And so that meant that Epicureans didn't really talk much about gods or divine beings or anything, so much so that people of their time actually used to call them atheists because they gave so little time um, uh, towards divine beings. Uh, for them, when you died, well, that was it. Uh, and so your soul just completely disintegrates. There's no consequences uh, after uh, death for the things that you've done in this life. And so what do they do? They pursued pleasure. Do you remember that thing on, on Grant and Will's, the, the question that they asked, what makes you most happy? Well, gee, Epicureans would be, that would be their main game. They pursued pleasure Pleasure was seen as a good thing and pain was seen as this kind of unnecessary evil that you needed to avoid. Does that sound familiar? Do whatever makes you happy. Eat, drink, indulge sexually. Be happy because when you die, it's all over. So you might as well make the most of it. YOLO, right? 
Now, the other group, the Stoics, well, they were like the modern greenies or the hippies. And I hope I'm not offending anyone when I use those titles. Uh, a few years back, I think this was the year that the Eagles um, won the premiership. I've kind of cut out everything since. Um, they interviewed one of the players, uh, players' dad in the Eagles' changing rooms after the game. And they asked this guy, you know, uh, they asked him in the end, what can you tell us about so-and-so that we don't already know? They're trying to get some dirt on him. And the dad said, did you know that he is a tree hugger? That was his word. He's a tree hugger. That's a modern-day Stoic, if you like. They're very mystical. They believe there's some force behind everything or maybe even in everything. Uh, and, and they would talk about Mother Nature or the soul of the planet. Uh, they would be happy you know, to have as many abortions as people would like uh, just so that we don't overpopulate the planet and kill the planet. Oh, we don't want to kill the planet. Let's kill the babies instead. That's a modern-day Stoic. Uh, after death, um, you, you kind of just turn into one of the elements uh, that, you know, that, that the kind of world came from, whether that's fire, water, wind, or land. They're, they're also, at least in theory, people who would say, hey, look, if, if a baby's born and he can't sustain himself or someone is fatally ill and they can't keep themselves alive, then we should just leave them. Okay, that's just part of nature. And so that is kind of their thinking. And in the end, your body will end up giving life to something or someone else. Think, think about the Lion King. Do you remember Mufasa, the, 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 the big lion, if you like? <laughs> um, and he tells his son Simba about the circle of life. How you know the, the lions kill the beast and then and they disintegrate and they feed the plants. and Oh, this beautiful circle of life. Well, he's a great modern day stoic. And so... Um, it's interesting thinking about that in a Disney movie, and then we wonder where our kids get these ideas from. Now, can you see a hippie or a greenie believing this? Maybe they're sitting on the rocks at the beach, and you know, they're trying to get in touch with Mother Nature. Just at Cottesloe, you know, not far from here. We don't just see uh, these philosophers, and maybe they don't call themselves philosophers these days, uh, in Athens, but we also see modern-day teenagers. Did you see that? Look at verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing, telling or hearing something new. You know, Athenians loved hearing and seeing all the latest stuff. I can just imagine wanting the latest set of Nikes or the latest haircut or the, the latest uh, clothes. They would be constantly scrolling through Instagram trying to get all the latest from their friends and the world. And Actually, they probably, you know, they wouldn't even be using Instagram because that's, that's so last year, you know. They probably have something new. And um, they're, they're poor parents. They just constantly be making fools of themselves when they, when they catch on to something that they think there's new and they start using the slang as a parent and teenagers kind of give them the stare going like, oh, that's so last week. You know, it's all about the latest. In Athens, if you weren't up with the latest, you're old news. You're out of date. You're no good. Do you think that's our society today? Lastly, have a look at verse 23 to see another group of people we find in Perth in 2022. It's those who would have many gods in their mind and even a category to the unknown God. These are people who would say, hey, 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 Christianity is not the only way to God. No religion is the only way to God. You know, really, all religions lead to the same God, a bit like everyone going up a mountain, different paths, and God's up the top, and he's waiting for everyone who tries to get to him. 
This kind of thinking has very little certainty and clarity, uh, and it brings as many gods into it as it can, uh, just to, to kind of save your own backside. Oh, well, maybe it's not Jesus, maybe it's also this one, and so they add different gods. Even saying you have a God you don't even know is what they're doing here, just to make sure you're okay. Now, do you see how similar Athens was to Perth? You, you see the human problem is always the same. It kind of simply shows, it up, shows up itself in different ways in history. Or you can put it another way, if you take a different angle, more spiritual if you like, you could say that Satan only has a few ways to deceive us and to stop us from believing in God. And he uses them over and over throughout the centuries. They just look a bit different. Now, the reason why I want to show you the similarity between Athens and Perth is so that we can learn from Paul. How does he engage with these people? How would he engage with Perth in 2022? And, and, and I want us to have a quick look at a kind of helicopter view if this, of the speech that he gives that this chapter in, in Acts is so famous for. And then we're going to zoom into four places to get four challenges out for us from this passage. Okay, so, so Paul, he's just arrived in Athens. Let me give you a quick look here. So remember how the gospel started down there in Jerusalem. It's gone all the way around and uh, last, a couple of weeks ago, we got to Philippi, went through Amphipolis and Apollos. Man, I'm really shaky, eh? Uh, and then he got to Thessalonica last week. He got, um, his life was in danger, so he left to Berea. And even at Berea, the same people from Thessalonica chased after him. Actually, I've got a next slide that'll make this a bit easier. Okay, so, um, so he was in Thessalonica, Berea, and then they sent him away. They said, look, let's get you further away than just Berea so these people can't chase you. So they took him by the sea. And he's gone all the way down here to Athens. And that is where he's just arrived. A, a group actually had to escort him out. And, he, and as they left, as he finally ar- arrives in Athens, he says to them, make sure, I've left Silas and Timothy at Berea to kind of look after these new Christians. Uh, make sure you tell Timothy and Silas to come to me as soon as they can. Okay, and so there Paul is in Athens. And, and as Paul waits for his teammates, um, He was blown away by the amount of idols in the city. Apparently, they say, for every 10,000 people in Ephesus, there were 30,000 gods. Not not so much that there are that many gods, but uh, they were just everywhere in pictures and plaques and statues, just everywhere you went. And and it doesn't sit well with Paul. It made him kind of sick to his core. It, It kind of tormented his righteous soul as he watched and heard of all this ungodliness. And so... What does he do? He starts reasoning with the Jews and, 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 and the Greeks who are God-fearers in the synagogues. He starts reasoning with them on the Sabbath. And then he also reasoned with those in the marketplace uh, every other day of the week. Uh, now, later in, uh, next, uh, in Corinth, actually, you see that Paul was a tent maker. That was his trade. And so he would often, when he goes to a new city where there's not an established church, he would start doing that trade. And it seems that that's probably what he's doing. And as he's kind of rubbing shoulders with people and getting in touch with clients, he's reasoning with them. Uh, Athens was this kind of intellectual and cultural uh, hub of the Greek world. And so people loved reasoning. And so Paul was right in there. And as Paul does this for a while, it becomes clear to more and more people that he's got some really strange ideas that they haven't heard before. And so they take him to the Areopagus, now, the Areopagus was, was this hill just outside the kind of main city center. 
And it's actually uh, the hill of Ares, who's their war of God. So Areopagus. And um, I wonder if they take people there to kind of sort things out, to say, hey, hey, if you're going to if you're gonna want to change the Greek world and Greek culture, you need to get past our God of war. And interesting, at the end of our passage, it says that some of the Areopagus actually followed Paul. Uh, but the other thing is, is, is the Areopagus isn't just a location, the hill. It is also a group. It's a group of people um, who, who governed the city. So, so they take Paul to the Areopagus, as we see in verse 19, that's the location. And then he's standing in the midst of the Areopagus, as we see in verse 22, that's the council. And so Paul gives a speech and he starts at the beginning of time with God as the creator of the world and he finishes at the end of time with God as the righteous judge of the world. Now, no one in Athens believed in life after death and certainly not in in some sort of judgment for what you've done in life. And so Paul says, actually, you know what? You can be assured of both those things because Jesus has risen to life again. And then it seems that Paul's speech is interrupted because people start mocking him. Have a look there in verse 32. They start mocking him. Whoa, whoa, you know, we were fully behind you until you started talking about the resurrection. Others said, hey, we'd like to hear from you again. And some believed Paul enjoyed him. One of them were were Dionysus the Areopagite. So someone who's part of that city's ruling council. It's almost like Luke saying, hey, Paul got one over the war, uh, you know, of um, the god of Ares, the war of. The, the, the God of war. Now, when I worked through this passage, I don't know about you, when Tony was reading it before, I felt really challenged. And so I want to share four challenges with you guys this morning. The first one is this. Are you provoked by the lack of worship of Jesus where you are? Now, Paul walks into this beautiful port city, eh? Like, just imagine that. I can imagine going there for a holiday. It's picturesque. It's just Perfect for a holiday. Look at it at night time. Oh man, I can imagine myself sitting in one of those restaurants having some nice seafood, seafood basket with a glass of red wine maybe. It'll be great. And so there he is. And, and you know, came to think of it, Paul's had it pretty tough. Paul's had it pretty tough. You know, his life was in danger. So he, he fled Berea and Thessalonica. Before that, he was beaten with rods and he was imprisoned. Um, before that, there was also that time, remember how at Lystra he, he got stoned and they actually thought that he was dead, so they chucked him out of the city. They didn't even bother trying to bury him and then he, he rose up again. And, and come to think of it, I wonder if he was even recovered from that, to be honest. But anyway, most, almost everywhere that he went, Paul either had been driven out of cities or he had to flee for his life because he was preaching Jesus uh, and the resurrection. And now he's here in Athens. Oh, the perfect place for a holiday. Would you believe it? Thank you, God. But the problem is Paul is so provoked by the lack of worship by Jesus or of Jesus that it makes him sick in his stomach. And so he doesn't have a holiday. The, the root word for provoked is, is sour wine. It's kind of weird. Uh, imagine how your gut would feel if you had off wine. Uh, you know that sickening feeling that you can have when you're not actually sick, but it's just because you've seen something disgusting that is so off-putting. I think that's how Paul felt by the worship of the Athenians. And, and they were really good at worship. <laughs> Paul says, wow, you guys are really good at worship. But it hurt him to the core of his being that they worship false and fake gods. Now I wonder, do you feel like that 
when you see the huge lack of worship of Jesus in Perth, in Gosnells, in Armadale. Think of the amount of people that's not here this morning. Or, or, or think about those in your school, your uni, your, your retirement village, or your workplace. Does it sadden you when you see people pursue things and they're hoping to get from those things what they can only get from God? Does it sadden you to see people doing things that's going to lead to their own destruction and the destruction of others? And I think if it, what that question boils down to is how much do we love Jesus? Uh, If we believe, like Paul, that God made everything and every single human being, that he gives everything life and sustains everything, and that we would have absolutely nothing if it wasn't for God, then it should sadden us when people turn their backs on that God. Don't you think? He deserves our praise. He deserves our thanks. He deserves our lives, all of it. Yeah, I think, you know, when we see loved ones not getting the praise or recognition they deserve, we're provoked, isn't it? When, when you have your, your, your other half come back from work and kind of just devastated because they did this thing and no one even recognized it or thanked them for it, um, we, we feel angry. We're like, man, I want to go step into that boss's office and just, you know, like, and, and we should do the same for God. Should it not be the same when those around us fail to honor the God we love as he deserves? So let's pray in line with this challenge that God would rekindle our love for him so that we would be provoked at the lack of worship of him in our region. That's challenge number one. Challenge number two, are you engaging or hiding from unbelievers? Are you engaging or hiding from unbelievers? You see, Paul sees the atrocity of the worship of those in Athens. And did you notice it doesn't drive him away? In fact, it seems to kind of bring him into their lives, into their communities. Look there at verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews. So that's the result of him being provoked. He went in, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons there and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Now, because of how provoked Paul was by their false worship, he started engaging with the Jews and the Greeks at the synagogue on the Sabbath. And then also he went into the marketplace. That was the kind of central hub of, the, of life back then. He went in there to try and reason with people. He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection to them, as we see there in verse 18. I don't know if this um, reminded you of what it reminded me of, but it reminded me of when Ben and Sam Good here a couple of years ago. Remember when, when, when Ben was up here right at the beginning, we asked him for some prayer points, and he said, hey, I've got these four guys that I met in the marketplace. So they're in uh, Mozambique. Um, and, and, and I've been reading the Bible with them. They're Muslims. They're really intrigued. We're praying together. I'm still messaging them right now. Um, can you please pray that they would be saved? And he's still meeting with them today. You know, he was meeting with them every week going through the gospel. That's the kind of image that I've got of Paul. He's in the marketplace, in people's lives, wherever the activity is, where we are. And so I wonder, have you distanced yourself from those who don't worship Jesus? Or, or have you pulled, gotten closer to them? Maybe, maybe you haven't locked yourself in your house and started a cult. Maybe it's not that bad. But 
have you, in a more nicely way, distanced yourself from people who are not yet Christians? I mean, when's the last time you had unbelieving family or friends or workmates around your dinner table with you? Um, And if you look at your circle of relationships, if you look at it really carefully, do you realize that actually uh, what I've done in my close circle of friendships, I've got all the good people in here, people who believe everything that I believe. See, because I think our tendency as natural human beings is to shut ourselves off from everyone that disagrees with us or are different to us. But that is not the Christian response. That is not how God responds. God sends His one and only Son into the world that rejected Him, that hated Him, that turned their backs on Him. And why did God do it? Because He loves human beings. You know, the, the first challenge is all about loving God. The second challenge, this one, is about loving people. That's what it boils down to. If we love people, we would be happily engaging with them in the hope that we can point them to God, the God that they're really deeply longing for and looking for, but they're trying to find him in other things. Do you love people enough to do that? I met up with a year 12 student just this week on Wednesday. We started meeting up recently and reading through the Bible uh, one-to-one, and he asked me, hey, how do I share my... How do I share Jesus with my friend? I've got this guy, man, we've been friends from like this young. He's my best mate. And, and just recently he's become really hostile towards Jesus. Everything he believes and says um, grinds against everything I believe and I stand for. And he hates the Jesus that I love. It's really difficult. The way he, he talks about people and the way he sees relationships is so different. I feel like I'm starting to withdraw slowly. But how, how, how do I love him? And how do I love God at the same time? Can you help me? I thought that was great. He wants to love God and he also wants to love his friend and have a good balance of that. And I think that should be all of us. And that's challenge two in a nutshell. Challenge three. Are you willing to challenge people's view of God? Everyone's got a view of God, even if they believe it doesn't exist. Are you willing to challenge those views wherever you are? In the way maybe that Grant and Will is doing on campus. You know, Paul does this speech in the, in the midst of the Areopagus. And what's interesting is he, he doesn't just tell people, hey, the God that I believe in is like this. And you can imagine them go, oh, that's a nice one. Let's add him to our, one of ours. No, no, he also says what God is not like. And every time he does that, which I'll show you now, It's like he's he's, he's doing it because that's the very thing that they have wrongfully thought that God is like. Uh, And and you know, often when you ask people about God, uh, I had this guy that was really hostile when I was a tradie. Um, And when, when I asked him why he doesn't believe, man, he gave me like, this is what I think of God and what he's like. And in your mind, you think, you know what? If God really was like that, no one in their right mind would want to worship him. But, but what is the case is that people often have a misunderstanding, uh, misunderstanding view of who God is. They make him up in their own image and imagination. And so our job is to listen carefully and understand and engage uh, with our culture and then correcting their understanding. Have a look at how Paul does it. Have a look there from verse 24. 
Uh, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Now remember, <laughs> the Stoics uh, didn't believe in a God that made the world. Man, straight off the bat, Paul says, hey, the God of the Bible, Bible made the world and everything. And you wonder how that would have gone down. And my guess is with, with the way that they're teaching evolution in our schools and how it's just kind of part of the fabric of, of our society and our thinking, we probably have to start here too. Hey, hey, there is a God who made everything and so this world is not meaningless and without purpose. That, that's the logic, logical outworking of, of that truth and that's where Paul goes later. God made every human being on this planet in a particular time, and we're in a particular place. Do, do you know why you're here today? And why it's 2022? And you're not at the beach? Well, have a look at verse 27. Why did God do that? That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Is everything the way that God designed things is so that we might find Him? Remember how big the Stoics were on living in tune with nature, oh, Mother Nature and um, the soul of the planet. Well, Paul says, hey, 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 you kind of have that right. If you truly want to live in tune with nature, you will seek the Creator, God, and you will find Him. Not as part of creation, but as a ruler over all of it. God has created everything in such a way and is ruling sovereignly in such a way over everything to ensure that you will find him. It's, it's amazing. I love how Brenton was saying the gods back then, it only dawned on me as we were singing it, thank Brenton for this amazing thought, is, is back in those days you had all these gods because they were very limited. This is the god of war. This is the god of you know, farming. This is the god of, um, that helps you have babies and make you really fertile. And, and so on, the god of the sun. The god, and it's like, oh gosh. Paul says, hey, scrap it. My God's more powerful than that. He's the God of everything. Isn't that a great thought? So Paul doesn't simply say God made the world and now he's kind of in heaven and he really doesn't care because that's what the Epicureans believed. So he corrects their thinking too, saying, hey, God is ruling over heaven and earth. He's not disinterested. And he certainly cares about you and he cares about this planet and what's going on in this world and in your life. And imagine, imagine how quiet it would have been when Paul said this, the creator God does not live in temples made by human hands. And then probably behind him, everyone looked at this. Ooh, crikey. Just imagine how awkward it would have been. So this is the Parthenon, I think if I'm saying it rightly, which is dedicated to the goddess of Athena. And there were plenty of those around, but that's the major one. It's still there if you go to Athens. Uh, and, and you just think, wow, that would have been awkward. Um, but Paul says it anyway. He says, you yourselves believe we are offspring of the divine being. And, and, and if you notice those quotes there in our passage, they're not actually from the Bible. They're from their own, prof, uh, from their own poets and philosophers. And so very different to last week where Paul's just opening up the scriptures he now engages with them using their own ideas and connects them with the Bible. But he, but he says to them, you know, it's illogical how you guys have, you're saying that we are offspring of God, 
And yet at the same time, you have gods made out of gold and silver and stone who can't think, who can't speak, who can't hear, who can't reason, who's got no personality. We are like God and your gods are nothing like us. So they must be false. You see the logic? He just uses simple logic and reason with them. And so do you see how Paul went about correcting and challenging people's view of God? Now for us, it'll look a little bit different, but actually there's a lot that's similar, isn't it? The challenge is, as uh, the challenge three says, oh no, I haven't put it up. The challenge is, are you willing to challenge people's view of God? Or are you just kind of happy, oh, well, that's what you believe and this is what I believe. Are you willing to challenge people's view of God? That's challenge three. And now, number four, are you, and the last one, so relax. Um, are you living according to God's plan? In our, in our day, just like in Athens, Paul, uh, when Paul was there, there are people who believe that, that life is kind of cyclical, going around and around endlessly. And, and they're kind of different variations of that. I've already mentioned Mufasa's circle of life, and then Hinduism is another one. Um, but there were also people who believed, very much like lots of Aussies today, that life is linear. You know, like a line that has a beginning and an end, and that's your life. It starts when you're kind of born, and it finishes when you die. And when Paul sh- speaks, he shares a third way that includes some truth of both of those. He says, yes, there's, it's eternity, and yes, it, is, it does have a beginning and an end, but let me show you something else. It's linear, and that it begins when you are born, but then it keeps going forever. So it doesn't finish when you die. That's what he says. Have a look there from verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You see, with Jesus' resurrection, God has shown us that there is life after death. Hey, Athenians, there is life after death. You've got it wrong, and I can prove it because Jesus is alive. So life is linear. It is like a line with a beginning when you were born, but it never stops. You kind of just transfer from one world into another when you die, you do exist forever. But Jesus' resurrection to life after being crucified is not simply to show that there's life after death. Actually, more importantly, I don't know if you realize the emphasis of our passage, it shows that Jesus is the man that God has appointed to judge the world in righteousness. Now, before Jesus' resurrection, people might have been ignorant of them of this, like those people that Paul are addressing, and, and I'm sure... Uh, like most Aussies thinking as well. But with Jesus' resurrection, God has given us total, absolute assurance that there is a day coming when life as we know it will stop. And on that day, Jesus will judge the world. This is how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5, one of my favorite passages, not because of the first bit so much, but the second bit. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, that is a pretty frightening picture, isn't it, the first bit? Knowing that, 
We persuade others. We don't bunker down. We persuade others. And so, are you living according to God's plan and persuading others that there is a judgment coming? Are you telling people that God is commanding them to repent from from worshipping everything other than Him? Are you telling them, hey, Jesus was already judged for you on the cross, for all of your false worship. And so trust in him and you will never be judged for your rejection of God. Do you tell them that? God rejected Jesus on the cross. This is what you can say to them, so that anyone who trusts in Jesus will never have to be rejected by God because how they have lacked to worship him. Now, when I look at our world, I think people are aware that life, uh, as we know it, is going to finish. I feel like it's actually quite strong. Uh, But the thing is that they don't know about coming face to face with Jesus after that happens. And, And the sad reality is that once they get face to face with Jesus, there's no turning around. You can't change things then. And we need to tell people, we need to tell people, hey, hey, global warming will not end the planet. I can guarantee you that because Jesus will end it. He will end life as we know it when he comes back. We need to tell people that, that, that living in tune with nature is not about embracing trees. It's about embracing Jesus. That is the ultimate meaning of living in line with creation. We need to tell people to worry less about getting a Tesla and more about standing before the judgment seat of Christ. I'm not saying one's not important, but there's one that's much more important. Living according to God's plan is to be ready for the day Jesus comes again and lovingly persuading others to, to, be, to be of it too. And so are you living according to God's plan? of those plans. It's either you're living according to your own plan or according to God's plan. And one of those plans are going to stop one day and it's not going to continue. And one of them is going to continue forever. So make the right decision. The times of ignorance is over. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for challenging us this morning through your word. Um, It's not just that we want to sit here and feel the weight of a bunch of things that we want to do, but really uh, we want to hear firstly of how amazing you are, how you did create everything, how you have given us meaning and purpose, how there's a plan to everything. Uh, This life is is not just an accident uh, made up of a bunch of atoms that will one day maybe stop. Who knows? No, you created everything. You're ruling over everything right now. You're doing it all in a way that we might seek you and find you. And you're not far from us. In the Lord Jesus, you have come. And you are present even here this morning through your word, still working as you did in Acts. We're hearing so many stories of this. It's so encouraging. We don't just read it in the Bible. We see it in front of us. So thank you for who you are. You are a great God. And uh, we want to be... Yeah, our love for you, understanding of you rekindled so that we might be provoked as we look around us 
and see people pursuing things that are destructive, that will lead to despair, that ultimately will not lead to life, but lead to emptiness and sadness and disappointment. So Lord, give us that heart as we, as we have our eyes fixed on you. And please uh, make us bold to challenge people's view of God and do it lovingly and and, and, and certainly after listening a lot and understanding who we're dealing with and the culture that we're in, please be with us, Lord. We want to live in light of your plan. We want to live in the true times that we are, the times where, uh, where the times of ignorance is over. And someone has been appointed, the Lord Jesus Christ, to judge the living and the dead in righteousness one day. And it's going to be serious. and We want to live in light of that. So please impress these things on our heart, give us confidence and boldness and use us to proclaim the good news of Jesus to people, even if they're strange to their ears, even if they're struggling with it, even if they mock us, may we stand and stand firm and continue to be um, yeah, just true to you and true to the ultimate truth and realities that we know. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to invite the musicians up now, and we're going to sing a song called Only a Holy God. And and God's holiness has two sides of it. Holiness means set apart, different, utterly unique. And I hope that this morning, as we looked at this passage, and as Paul was comparing God to the gods of the world, that you will see that he is utterly unique. He's, He's in a world and a class of his own. But secondly, holiness is also the idea that we more know naturally, which is that God is is utterly clean. He's like completely clean and perfect and righteous. And he's the God that will come back and, and judge us in righteousness.